0: What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined, as always, by my co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, <laughs> did you enjoy Donda this weekend?
1: <laughs> so fire, bro. So fire. Uh, is that uh, coming? I, I don't know, man. Mike Dean doesn't seem to be having too much fun making the album now. <laughs> Claims he's still working on it, though, but uh going to be lashing out. Um yeah no uh, I'm once again living in his in his historical event, and I wish that event was <laughs> uh a Kanye album and not something else. but here we are, yeah
0: Ugh, man i just I just wanted to drop the album, but i I assume we'll probably get it sometime in September on like a Wednesday at this point, like just whenever I believe it's...
1: the the new temporary date is friday this Friday the twentieth or whatever that is twenty first uh cut, sure, sure. that's
0: audio clip. And just replay it every week until <laughs> who knows when. But yeah, if you wanna follow us, hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash or visit soundcloud.com slash pod to listen to the podcast any way you want. And Dave, you can also search our Nostalgia Best of twenty twenty one on Spotify where we keep all of our favorite songs from our favorite projects of the year. We're not gonna have anything from Don donna yet, obviously but we might be adding something from Red Velvet on there, dropping their sixth mini album. I don't know what, how many official releases this is for them, you know, with like feature length, but um, right. another K-pop group as we're kind of wading into that water and learning more about these these bands just dropped today. What would you think of their uh, their most recent project?
1: Yeah, Queendom. The sixth mini album, as you said, from Red Velvet. I looked, I counted up. They have ten EPs slash uh, mini albums. Not sure why it's the sixth one. Couldn't really figure out that the delineation there. And then they have two feature length albums. So there's a lot of music out there from Red Velvet. And I listened to some of the hits, but I wasn't super familiar with the group beyond just knowing who they were. And yeah, Queen Queendom as a mini album nomenclature might suggest short six tracks six tracks 19 minutes and i thought it was pretty good um you know learning more about the group they're they're, they're like really lauded for their versatility in terms of different types of songs different types of song production specifically and i don't know if i got like that like stark versatility on this queendom ep it kind of sounded all kind of similar but it sounded pretty good what'd you think
0: Yeah, you know, I I thought actually like the beginning and where it ended up did sound drastically different, but it all kind of sounded within the same vein of like K-pop, like nothing necessarily felt like new or adventurous in that sense. But it's actually interesting because I feel like a lot of the K-pop albums we have reviewed this year, I've really enjoyed when it's more like upbeat, like clubby. real like festival type banger sound i thought they i thought i enjoyed this more when they were a little bit more like toned back like Mm -hmm. the last track hello sunset i thought it was just like a really nice track and i don't know if maybe that's just where my headspace was at like looking for something that was a little bit more like downbeat but i actually found that to be when i felt like they meshed together the best something like pose which felt really all over the place to me um I think was a bit off putting because they were going for that clubbiness or that that like stadium type sound and I just did not feel like like it really all worked there. But some of the more like toned back tracks I thought were a lot smoother. Did
1: you have that same feel? Yeah. Yeah. I I'm always a sucker for the the harmony when they Mm. sing together and like on a I think better be. Yeah. in, In the middle. You get that really nice, that like harmony breakdown on the chorus. Thought that sounded great. Yep. Um, and yeah, like I've been, I've been latching on to lots of like the bangers that have come out on the K-pop stuff we've been listening to this year. And I guess the banger from this would be the title track "Queendom," which got the music video out today. And I like that one. Uh, you know, the drums, the pulsing chorus it sounds good. But I think you're right. I think there's maybe more to grab from these specific album cuts instead like have you have you listen to their hits like um ice cream cake so much different from this very like electro pop mm-hmm. production i guess shades of like bts mic drop with steve aoki or like their probably their most lauded song uh red flavor one of their most listened to songs uh productions like really really wild you know but out of queendom yeah i think you're right like the the middle tracks and the way it kind of fades out it's um it's not like it's soft spoken or anything, but it's just more like it's primarily singing. Like like Irene, their leader, is does all the rapping. But I feel like the rapping was like in fits and starts. Like it was like a really nice flow, but it was still primarily like like singing first to me on this. Which I feel like a lot of the K-pop stuff, especially the bangers we listen to, it's often like fifty-fifty K-pop and singing, But I didn't feel that yeah. so much on this.
0: Yeah, I, I I completely agree with uh, your your assessment there. I think um, this these six songs for whatever reason were a bit different, a bit more you know singing. I think you, I think you nailed it when you said that the harmonies really just popped for me. And I think here some really beautiful tracks. Maybe not the most like uh, it's not gonna like take down a stadium like like I said before, but it's still something that I think can um build out that catalog around some of those bigger hits. Um yeah, I mean, we hadn't talked about a K-pop album for a while. I uh, I feel like it's been like maybe over a month since our last review mm-hmm. of a K-pop project. So nice to have this as you know, a big drop back in our in our lives on a Monday here. I also appreciate that Monday drops.
1: Yeah, Very good. Yeah, yeah, that's for that, that's for sure. Yeah, we talked about a lot of SM stuff, right? NCT Dream, EXO, Shiny comeback. And this, of course, whenever they message anything with K pop, it's like the Red Velvet comeback. And it's like, well, their last uh, EP as a group was at the end of 2019. It's hardly a comeback. Not I to did. mention the subunit of the group, Irene and Solgi, released their debut subunit EP in 2020. So it's like they're always here. Like, I don't know why they always call it the comeback. The Red Velvet comeback is here. It's like they're, they're not, they're no, they didn't go anywhere. They're just <laughs> making music. Like,
0: <laughs> so funny. If it it gets people uh, interested in buying the album, do what you got to do is what I say. Um, Dave, you know, someone that didn't need to come back was Brandon Flowers, who uh, he's been working, man. And um, The Killers dropping their second album within a year. Uh, We talked last year about, uh, what was it? Chasing the Mirage.
1: Floating the mirage, floating the
0: mirage, that's what it it's was. It's gone,
1: it's blowing up.
0: <laughs> yeah, imploding the mirage. And Dave, it's actually interesting. I'm looking at the picture behind you if you're watching youtube.com nostalgia pod. Uh, Hitler's looking old in that picture, man. And mm. uh, you know, I it, it's kind of weird
1: because uh,
0: I think about them, and obviously, they're mid you know, that mid aughts, you know, like 2005, 2006. I think actually, Hot Bus may have been 03. Now I'm thinking about it, but. Really like that middle of the zero zeros. They really yeah. started to pop. Hot Fuss, Sam's Town, mm-hmm. Day and Day Age, those sorts of albums. But yeah, they're, they're old now. They're aging with us. And uh employing the Mirage, I think we were kind of like middling on maybe a few interesting moments. But overall, the last couple have just been really disappointing albums. Did that trend continue for you on Pressure Machine?
1: And yeah, so I didn't like Wonderful, Wonderful. I didn't really like him pulling the Mirage, though I liked it more than Wonderful, Wonderful. And I definitely like Pressure Machine more than those two, mm-hmm. uh, I think, quite clearly. It's just, it's just a more interesting album this time around. You know, the concept album, a Small Town bringing Flowers Going Back to His Roots in Utah. However superficially that might come across, it's still the the premise of the album and at least for me it's like something to latch on to and mm-hmm. i i actually thought the, the songs were pretty solid you know most of them i thought like like early on uh, the first track west hills that's a little long little long-winded uh, indulgent <laughs> song but after that like i actually think it's pretty good like it's getting a lot of comps to like you know bruce springsteen homage which has been a killer's talking point for a while at this point mm-hmm. um and you also have the the constant voiceovers usually at the beginning or ends of the tracks from people in this town uh, recorded that. by an NPR audio engineer kind mm-hmm. of setting your stage right and like I think like almost half the songs have some kind of uh narration piece to it. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was I thought it was pretty interesting. Um for especially for music that I'm not normally like super jazzed to get up in the morning for but I, I actually uh liked it and it's um also, I think, has a really interesting meta angle to it because this is a lot different than the more like anthemic arena rock that Employing the Mirage was supposed to be, right? And The Killers notably recorded that album pre-pandemic and haven't yet toured that album. And now I've made this new album that's starkly different. The comparison point is Taylor Swift here, lover, recorded pre-pandemic, much more poppy, not toured yet, and then followed up with Folklore and Evermore, which is completely different, you know? Yeah. It's kind of funny to see that parallel between the Killers and Taylor Swift of all, of all groups.
0: I mean, it's definitely a, a interesting parallel, I suppose. I think Lover, obviously, a lot better than Imploding the Mirage. And check out that, our Lover review and our Imploding the Mirage review. Um, you know, in reading about this album and the preparation for it, I didn't. I didn't know this beforehand, and maybe this is just an oversight on my part, but apparently before recording the last couple albums, Wonderful, Wonderful, Playing the Mirage, I think even a couple of the others before that, like Battleborn, um, like Brandon Flowers would go in with a idea in mind of what he wanted to come out with, but didn't have anything pre-written. He would just go in there and write the songs as it's going. But this was the first album he's gone in with tracks written or songs already written out and i think you really hear that in in this album because like you said i think one i think this is probably his best lyric lyrical album it probably since like Samstown, which is their second album um yeah. but uh, it just sounds like they had a concept that really worked whereas something like wonderful wonderful i think certainly has some tracks that probably stand out more than some of those like sam's uh sam's town like deep cuts like the man you know especially after vice and uh, it was just played every single commercial for that every single premiere it's played for a lot of like sports things too that that song is probably going to be at the top of their catalog forever now unfortunately i don't think it's one of their better songs but it just kind of is what it is uh for late killers but i think there's like five or six songs on here that are just way better and way more thought out, you know, like a song like Sleepwalker to me really stands out. as like a nice mix of flowers really tapping into that, like Springsteen-esque vibe, but then them totally nailing the like Killers stadium sound at near the end with the, you know, the guitar solo, the drums kicking in, it just really intensifies. And you kind of hear something similar a couple of tracks later in, in the car outside, where it's very similar, like song structure, but again, like talking about uh, like real world issues that, that are going on in this town, something that feels a little bit more relatable. Um, however, I do think the writing was hit or miss for me. Right, so something a track I've seen getting a lot of praise is uh, "Desperate Things," right, and it's the song about a cop who kills his girlfriend's abusive boyfriend and runs off with her. Um, Meanwhile, he has a wife and daughter of his own. It's like one of the few killer songs that goes on. It's like five or six minutes and they have like five or six verses to it. I I found it pretty cringy at points, but like it's kind of nice to see Brandon Flowers like breaking out of the, the traditional like mold of his writing and like pushing himself a little bit. So even the things that didn't work, I think I, I give him some credit for it. Um, we only got one collaboration on this album with Phoebe Bridgers. How did you feel like that song worked, Runaway Horses?
1: Uh, yeah, I liked it. It's was good. Another one with uh, narration to it. Uh, Phoebe was a guest on something else we talked about recently. Uh, maybe it was uncredited. I don't remember. Um, she seems to play well with others. She's being tapped a lot as a guest for rock stuff yeah she uh,
0: I think um she's definitely been anointed as that like uh queen of indie and I think people really recognize her songwriting ability is strong and she harmonizes so well you know something like uh, I don't know I'm trying to think of a track that stands out my, my brain's falling short at the moment but <laughs> she just really is uh um I think a, a good collaborator at this
1: point but what what track stood out for you? Uh, I think Quiet Town is pretty good. That one has the Bruce the Bruce vibes going on. I like that one. I liked uh, Cody um, Runaway Horse. Uh, the on Pressure Machine, the trio track. I liked uh, the like scratching of the production on like that. Was it like on mm-hmm. the on the guitar? You know. Um, yep. I think maybe to, to the purists that might sound like bad guitar work, but uh, I don't know. I thought it sounded cool. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I was just surprised to be pleasantly amused by a killer's record, you know? Cause normally I'm just like, ah, this is just droning on for me. And it's like, yes, yeah, like, I'm not going to like run this back anytime soon, but I actually think like the, the lyrics seem to be stepped up. Even if, as you said, they're not like, as a you know revelatory as some people are making them out to be i think some people have some rose-colored glasses just because it's like oh the killers they're being somewhat interesting again this is awesome and it's like oh yeah so that's cool but like you know let's let's still keep it a buck it's not like the most amazing thing i've ever heard but it's pretty good so but then again like if you're a killers fan like i'm sure you're just going to go stick to hot fuss and sam's town in like two weeks you know you're not going to go back to this yeah, I mean, it, I, I think probably
0: Sam's Town is the unequivocal, like, gem of their discography. Hot Fuss I'll ride for all day, but um, Sam's Town just more consistent, I think conceptually better. But the, it, I think if we're going to be getting Killers albums that are this focused and, uh, you know, lyrically, Flowers is pushing himself to step in the right direction uh, for a band that could have very easily just faded in, faded into playing... The hits and stadium tours for the rest of their career you know just doing the festival yeah. circus so i appreciate seeing that but dave it's time to move on to some tv and we each got to some shows that the other one didn't get to i'm gonna start because dave on fx just wrapped up this past weekend and i guess it was this past thursday this past weekend and dave is a show i've caught up on very recently, you know, um, is a show that had always been kind of on my radar, but I had always, I'd kind of chalked it up to being a Hulu show, which is funny because FX and FX on Hulu, you know, obviously having that partnership. I kind of just am like, ah, it's a show on Hulu. Like, if I ever put Hulu as a streaming service on my TV, maybe I'll get around to it. And I've made a point to catch up on some of the shows on there, uh, like Rami, for example. Wait,
1: are you saying you don't have Hulu like
0: hooked up? No, I I do, but like I just never open it as an app. Like, oh yeah, I, I'm yeah. always on Netflix, HBO,
1: Disney Plus, mm-hmm. but yeah, Hulu, Hulu, I'm, I'm only on Hulu when FX is bringing me to Hulu. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so
0: as I've been uh, trying to catch up on shows, Dave was one I finally got to, and I, I found this to be a really delightful show. Um, you know, the first season I think was a little more up and down for me. And I think seeing little Dickie and uh, I, I'm not sure if this would be like an autobiographical uh, telling of his come up, but there's definitely obviously a lot of true stories or things that are close to true that are told in this. Um, I, I think it's just like fascinating to see his perspective on like where he's at as a rapper it, uh, we haven't gotten a record from him in what like three going on three years now maybe four so it's you know it's been a while maybe maybe
1: it's only two maybe he was 2019 but no, it feels no it, longer. It, it, it's been a while um the debut album is 2015 yeah, yeah. and then he had one off wow, stuff like yeah, then he had one-off stuff like Freaky Friday and Earth, and I. It, right. it technically Earth. was like the Earth EP, which was like the Alter Ego thing, but he hasn't released something under Little Dicky since 2015, uh, full length right. anyway. And in season two, I think, really
0: grapples with I th- I think where he's at, uh, in terms of making an album, which is he's fighting, he's dealing with writer's block the whole time. Really, uh, an introspective season where he's grappling with his own insecurities, his own relationship issues his own uh personality traits of using other people or taking and not giving back and it's you know and obviously it's couched with some really funny episodes and some really outlandish uh themes i mean there's an episode here where he uh he does an interview with kareem abdul jabbar and just like all the things that happen around that interview are just really really Hilarious and strange, um, but what really impressed me about Dave because you obviously you know you get the dick jokes if you know anything about Little Dicky and has come up you're you kind of have to go in expecting to be getting that. But season two really I felt like leveled up in terms of like a, a building out the side the characters around Dave really well while also not losing the plot of Dave trying to make this record, trying to get over this writer's block, trying to find inspiration and what, what he wants to be as an artist. And uh, you know, like a character like Gaeta who you get in the first season that he's dealing with bipolar. And I actually think that's handled fairly well on the show um, and explained pretty clearly and and accurately. Um, You really see like the pressures around him that contribute to like his manic episodes. You see how this like he's basically dave's hype man on this show and always kind of like trying to keep him positive keep him moving forward keep his ego up and it wears on him because he he feels like he's not getting anything from dave as a friend and dave's whole management team in this season are and in the show are his friends or you know his producer is a, a friend from uh childhood is Manager is a friend from his first like adult job. Ada is a person that he befriends before he ever like releases anything big. So there's a lot of like blurring of lines, and I think that's really like teased out well. And then there's just like the weirdness that I think you come to expect from Little Dicky. There's an episode where he goes to work with uh, Rick Rubin, and he goes to his like uh, Rick Rubin's house and he does one of those um, what's it called like you no know, gravity pools or whatever, where they like take wow. away all your senses and you're just floating
1: uh, in- infinity pool.
0: Yeah. Infinity pool. And he's, uh, he's just floating in there and you know, like all these like visuals come and he like faces himself, but himself in the future and there's an aardvark or uh, an anteater involved. It's uh, <laughs> it's really, really strange, but I think um, I think the payoff uh, of the show and seeing like the the way Dave evolves as a character is just really not what I expected from a show like this. I kind of thought it was just going to be dick jokes, and it totally my, it surpassed my expectations with that. Also, Dave and Allie, who's like the love interest in the first season and like his girlfriend, I think the fact that they could actually get me to buy into a relationship with Little Dickie is pretty impressive because i would never like he's so self-centered in the show that to like want them to be together to want to root for this couple is just really uh i think like an accomplishment of the show because they've this is kind of an asshole like a self-centered piece of shit in this so um i yeah. appreciate the look
1: <laughs> i appreciate that uh taco for mod future is a f- part of the cast on this show mm-hmm. uh was it taylor bennett tyler bennett whatever his first name is taco yeah that's cool i think it's uh, of course sid's uh sid's brother mm-hmm. but uh yeah you know i've yeah, i've wanted to give it a, oh, okay i've wanted okay. to give it a chance but i'm having a hard time getting over little dicky of it all because i've just really fallen off little dicky because it's kind of clear that he just kind of like you, like, like, like often seems to happen with white rappers, they use hip hop to further their overall career, and then leave hip hop behind. Notice how he's not even going by Little Dicky anymore, like the, the press for the show, he goes by his real name, Dave Bird. It's like, I don't know, like... I've also just found like the, the music has gotten less interesting to me. Like I used to think he was really witty at times, like like a album cut like personality. So it's really funny quotables. But then like Freaky Friday, he seemed to you know, the dick jokes, as you said, it seems to have come come into the show as well. He's just not not that intelligent anymore, at least on that level. And of course, I, I think the Earth song is dog shit. So it's like musically, I've just been so out on him because he's barely in on his own music career, too. Mm-hmm. And then everything's just like a big joke. And it's like, I don't know, like I, I just wish he took his own his own stuff more seriously. Clearly, he's taking the show very seriously. But the fact mm-hmm. that his character is like, you know, the buffoon stuff like it was in real life. I don't know. It's a it's, it's a bit of a walk for me. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not super interested in him right now.
0: Yeah. And I think that's fair. Um, You know, there was a point, especially, I think it was maybe around like, I don't know, episode two or three of this season. I'm pretty sure there's, uh, is it this season where he's like with Benny Blanco? So there, Benny Blanco played uh, the the producer, plays a pretty big like role. It's like one of Dave's friends. in the There's a lot of big
1: cameos in season two, from what I know.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of big cameos um but like benny blanco is just like a running like side Mm -hmm. character right and i I think it's in season two there's like an episode where he's just like hanging out with him all day and they are doing like really ridiculous like uh, like homoerotic type stuff which you know like to each their own not a big deal but like the way it's just portrayed in the show just was like i don't know if this is handled the most tastefully (laughs) i don't know if like if if this is really like what I want to be consuming but then you get like an episode like I think just the next one is the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar episode I'm like this episode rules like this is great and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is great in it he plays like he's he's uh as like a post-basketball person is focused on his journalism career and is interviewing Dave and there's always like this like undertone of is he gonna write like a hit piece on Dave about him using black people and appropriating black culture. And it's, it's like really funny and really well done, but it's just like the back and forth of it all was kind of tough. Um, But yeah, then it's like, you need to just ride it out to like get the highs. And unfortunately there are some lows, but it also kind of reminds me of Rami, a show we haven't gotten a chance to talk about a lot, just in terms of there's some just really cringy moments, dude, that like you just want to like hide your hand, like hide your face and not watch and turn away from TV. So it's, it's not for everybody, but I think if, if you want to just like enjoy uh, a show and and not take it too seriously, this, this Mm. could be a good watch. So Ah, Dave, I use a lot of my time to watch Dave, Because I wasn't really that into the Bad Batch this season. But you you finished it, whereas I didn't. So tell me, did the season finale, did the season of Bad Batch
1: hit for you? It did, but I'm also already in the bag for this kind of stuff. Star Wars the Bad Batch, effectively just the next season of Clone Wars. Tie-ins to Clone Wars, as you'd expect, because it's a chronological sequel. Tie-ins to uh, Rebels in a certain sense as well, which is this a prequel. The Dave Filoni animated universe, this is just the latest entry. So I was already in on this. And I actually think, given Filoni's standards of season ones, this is towards the top, because Clone Wars season one, famously, not very good. Um, so I liked it a lot. I think there's important distinctions, so it probably makes sense for why you would, and I'm sure others may have checked out, is that this is very much... Uh, appreciated best if you already know everything that's going on with these animated shows and there's fan service that's more like there's fan service that just doesn't make any sense to someone who doesn't know these other characters and stuff so it's really much for those people that have been on the journey and i think that like that journey is continues to be more rewarding when you're already in but if you're just kind of picking this up for the first time yeah, I mean, then it's going to be uh, how much mileage do you have for a children's cartoon? Because it's still a children's cartoon. So it really depends what you're looking for with this. If you're in on all the Star Wars mythos, I, there's still plenty here. But if you're not, then, you know, it's eight hours that you might have find very up and down because there are episodes that are not super plot heavy. So it really depends what you're looking for. Yeah, that that's where I
0: out of it was um obviously not watching uh much of the animated series beforehand um, i got through like five or six episodes and i was hoping you know similar to like the marvel shows and we will we'll talk about one in a second that you know i was gonna get some like sort of easter eggs maybe some things pointing to like next steps in the star wars world um and I, I just felt like I wasn't really getting enough of that and it wasn't holding my attention as a show. Obviously, like you said, it's a show made for kids. So I think if you're not in on, like you said, the the characters already or some of the plots, um, or some of the callbacks, it just kind of felt like, ah, eh, it's a good show and not really for me, but w- what did you end up like? What did you end up being most impressed with or finding yeah. most enjoyable about this season?
1: Yeah. So there are a lot of good callbacks, um, I would say episode seven and eight that this is a a common thing with Rebels, Clone Wars, now the Bad Batch is like short arcs within the season, two or three episodes max kind of thing. This episode seven and eight, Battle Scars and Reunion, it's a two episode arc. And I think that's clearly the high point of the season. That's when uh, Captain Rex, of course, comes back into the fold uh, as expected. He was not in the trailer or anything, but people assume he would come back, of course, from Clone Wars. and his like relationship and conversations with Hunter, I think, really does color in more stuff in terms of like the early rebellion and just like things people are like interested in. And it's just cool to see Rex. I was the animation for these two episodes when you go to Baraka is really stunning. Uh, when they touch down that planet, and you see like the Star Destroyer graveyard. It's just really cool visuals. To we follow up uh, that episode with Rex, you know, he walks off in the mist, and the next episode. when Crosshair finally comes back to attack them and that's like obviously really good set pieces but then it ends with a total surprise which is Cad Bane the bounty hunter showing up for the first time on the Bad Batch another uh, staple of Clone Wars and that like uh, old west uh, dual gunslinger moment with hunters fucking sick so uh, I love seeing Cad Bane come. I love seeing Rex. So the, the the Baraka stuff was really cool to me. And of course, that's another um, light cameo too, because uh, Baraka was the subject of the Jedi Fallen Order video game. Uh, it's the first planet you go to there. So yeah, there's lots of cool stuff you see um, saw in the first episode, as you said, saw Guerrero, of course, uh, and Sandula shows up and that's where you get um uh, young Hera from rebels. That's probably the most like overt fan service. Cause it's, sidelining the Bad Batch while you have this episode about Young Hera and and her dad Cham and like how that's gonna go, and so if you don't if you hadn't watched Rebels, of which Hera is a central character, then you just have no idea what the fuck that is. You're like, oh okay, these are other people the Bad Batch are meeting, you know. So mm-hmm. it's like stuff like that sometimes where it's like like overt other times where oh fennec shows up well if you didn't watch the mandalorian that's just another bounty hunter to you or Mm -hmm. the martez sisters show up from Clone Mm -hmm. Wars season seven like some of the stuff is totally inoffensive i thought the harris stuff was like that's awesome for rebels fans but probably doesn't make any fucking sense to other people yeah it doesn't land for anyone else obviously yeah Yeah, i
0: mean so where does it leave off does leave off like uh season two is definitely coming or
1: yeah so they confirmed a season two right before the finale and in terms of like plot and like easter eggs and stuff like there is i think key stuff at the end obviously camino gets fucking nuked basically by this by the empire not a question people as i said in the premiere not a question people were overtly pondering what happens to the cloners when the empire decides we don't want any clones anymore turns out they fucking bombed the place <laughs> and you see that happen and honestly it's really devastating like when they go back and you see the halls and stuff It's like these silent scenes right before just this orbital bombardment, really effective, honestly, especially if you had been with the clones throughout Clone Wars 2. I thought that was a really good stuff and also a mm-hmm. fitting way to like put a nice stamp on season one as like an like a, a end note to then really have a branch off in new directions for season two. So I thought that was really effective. Um, also one of the cloners is basically kidnapped by the Empire and, like, the post credit scene or pre-credits end scene, um, she's, like, basically now at this Imperial cloning facility, and she gets, uh, you know, introduced to this uh, unnamed, like, Imperial scientist figure, who, of course, has the same symbol on her tunic as Dr. Pershing did in The Mandalorian when they were, mm. you know, trying to extract who knows what from uh, Grogu's uh, blood, as we know. So, maybe some early Early uh, Imperial cloning stuff to come, Snoke stuff, who the fuck knows, right? So I think that that's like a, like a cool Easter egg to, to ponder, and I'm sure it'll come up over time in season two. But 2022 is actually going to be loaded for Star Wars stuff. You have Bad Batch season two, The Mandalorian season three, the Cash and Andor Rogue One spin off Andor, as well as The Obi Wan Kenobi Show. For all four shows coming in 2022. Which one are you most excited for? Oh, that's tough. Obi-Wan, come on. You it's and McGregor, Obi- It's gotta yeah. be Obi-Wan. But I'm actually quite excited for Andor the more I learn about it. Apparently Forrest Whitaker is returning as Saw, which is cool. Mm. Yeah. Wow, we're, we're going to be talking about
0: him in just a little bit in respect, but uh, and, I've liked most of what I've seen from him recently.
1: So, And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually encounter Cash and Andor in animated form on the Bad Batch. Plenty of room for more synergy. Looking like, mm. for Lucasfilm, they know what they're doing on TV definitely exciting stuff uh if you
0: enjoy star wars watch the bad batch and if you enjoy marvel i think you're probably watching what if what if you are i don't know i probably don't don't listen to this review but uh yeah marvel's what if premiered this past wednesday i enjoy i enjoy when we when we're getting these marvel shows on wednesdays now it feels like a good day to drop. But regardless, what if is exploring the multiverse, exploring the, you know, these heroes. But if situations had gone differently, if they were perhaps switching roles or taking on other superhero powers. Um, And in this first episode, we get the uh, Captain Britain, right? That's why it's Captain Britain.
1: Uh, No, this would be Captain Carter. captain Captain brun is a different character right you're right
0: (laughs) sorry captain carter uh and if she was asian carter you know if, if she became the first avenger what if yes and um you know peggy carter obviously steve rogers love interest and friend and uh Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of comes from her, but not directly because it's more in the future. But, you know, we, we she, she's in the Marvel Universe, basically. And in, in this scenario, in this what if, she becomes Captain America, basically, and Steve Rogers becomes Iron Man, um, which, sure, okay. But, um, you know, what if is, an in, is it probably less interesting for the things that actually happen? Mm-hmm. I think more interesting for this felt like a low stakes show some like a bit of filler for marvel going in as just something to kind of bridge a, a gap in programming in a sense just kind of have something to build out the catalog and then we get news before that there will be consequential things to the overall arc of phase what was it phase 4 um, yeah. as we you know as m- these episodes play out um, and I think you kind of see at the end of this first episode that Nick Fury in one of the mul- these multiverse timelines is seems to be getting people together uh, in some way. So there's there's something going on there. But I know that you weren't super pumped for this, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. I think part of it's because it's animated, but that's not a barrier for me. Again, I love Star Wars animated Bash. shows. Yeah. yeah, it. I think it's just because like, I am very skeptical of the consequential nature of Marvel's What If. We just went through this with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is like barely consequential. And that's live action featuring actors in the actual movies. You know, mm-hmm. um, they got a lot of talent returning for What If to vo- do voiceover. Not everyone, Chris Evans, a big exception, Downey as well. So. I just want to see it first. I want to see what this consequence is because the the, na- the nature of the multiverse is that you can do anything, but also that nothing actually needs to matter because you can just do anything and you can do whatever you want. In this case, Captain Carter, right? This was just a redux of Captain America 1, the film. And it was cool. I think the animation's beautiful, you know, it, it's perfectly fun, but I think that I think I don't think it's done anything to differentiate from other Marvel television animated series. Of course, this is a Marvel Studios television show What If, but the Marvel Television stuff is still existing in some form, right? We had a Modok came out recently starring Pat Oswalt. How is What If actually that different from Modok, which I know people like, but it's like I feel like this is for Marvel super fans, you know? Yeah. And like you got to really want to watch a Marvel cartoon. At least until I see something different.
0: Yeah, you know I, I think I'm I'm bought into the Marvel shows at this point, and I, I like when they get weird. I do agree. I'm a little less captivated because it is animation, um, and obviously, you know, like they had a lot of people coming back to reprise their roles, doing voice work. Um, but there are some notable people missing. Uh, first episode, Chris Evans is not voicing uh, steve rogers i believe scott johansson doesn't come back i don't think robert Downey jr comes back mm-hmm. so you know a few the, the biggest people are like out on doing the voice work for this but um the fact that they got so many people back is interesting and i'm you know i i think it's just fun to like be with these characters in in a different way you know i think one of the knocks on Steve Rogers is you know he's kind of a boring character because he's just always making the right choices and I think they obviously uh play that up in you know end game and things like that but it was interesting to see him as Iron Man I think just because it's like hmm. obviously such a play on the the you know rivalry he had with Iron Man with Tony Stark as they were you know rivals or Um, what
1: was his name in this Hydra buster or something like that yeah
0: your buster which uh, work on the name i'd say but powered um, by howard stark of course yeah but i I think overall i just kind of found this to be a a good setup but i don't i I don't know what like combination really i'm like
1: hoping for
0: like i don't know who i want to see doing what and we think about the next episode which is obviously uh i say obviously people may not know this it's chadwick boseman uh his last voice acting role Mm -hmm. uh, reprising t'challa as
1: star lord t'challa which is such a weird
0: combination
1: so i don't know (laughs) yeah i kind of wish his last voice appearance was doing something else that i feel like i don't know fucking mattered i don't i don't (laughs) know it's just the the, i i i want to see this feel any different than all the other animated Marvel shows because all the other animated Marvel shows don't get people up in the morning. They're animated Marvel shows for kids. Yeah. And just because this one was made by Kevin Feige and crew doesn't necessarily change that. So I I just need to see more. Yeah.
0: We'll we'll check back in with it a little later on in the season, maybe when it wraps up, um, if it's worth checking in on. Dave, we've gone through all this other TV. And I've just been waiting to talk about White Lotus with you, man. Like just want to get back onto the beaches of Hawaii. want to get, I uh, want to go scuba diving. want to, you know, uh, get, get my room upgraded to the, the one with the, the drop pool in it. You know, like
1: I just yeah. want
0: what Fucking I can pineapple sweet bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we talked about white Lotus after the first episode. I think we, we were both really intrigued by the show. Uh, really interested to see where, where it was going. Um, I think there's a bit of like a red herring in the first episode. You know it starts off with you know them loading ah uh, the remains of a you know a corpse onto the plane as they're they're flying out from this resort. and you're kind of like, oh, who dies? you know like what's where's the murder where's the where's the death come in here? And I think that kind of like hangs over the end of the show. But I found this show so much more fun and compelling to be with for so many reasons that weren't that 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 almost felt like a, like added bonus to it did you have the same experience? Did you enjoy White Lotus?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I think White Lotus, unless you're in the bag for Mike White's stuff. And I, I I wasn't. I didn't really know much of Mike White's work. I knew him as the guy in School of Rock. I didn't know he was this kind of niche filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen Enlightened, his last HBO show. So I didn't really know, like, what the Mike White ticks were. So watching White Lotus, I was just pleasantly surprised a lot about where it ended up going and and, and what like themes mattered to the show. And I like that. It's not a quote, like satisfying conclusion in the traditional sense. And there are lots of things that will frustrate you. And I think that is the point. And it's really well done. We know it's been renewed for a season two at HBO. It will now be an anthology format. Honestly, it's a great premise. Probably pick a new island, but Mike White conceived of the show as to be COVID-friendly, where you can just make a production bubble at a real-life resort, and make the show relatively mm-hmm. risk-free. Everything sounds perfect, honestly. But season one it is is really great, and uh I think you know, as you mentioned, like the in media res of the dead body, it's basically dropped, right? Like it, there's no oh, yeah. like overlying tension of what what that's about. Until yeah. they have to finally kill somebody <laughs> to satisfy it, you know? So it's almost like a play on, like, other shows that um, have quite routinely introduced a dead body in episode one as, like, a tech, right? Like, a, like the dead girl in the beginning of Mare of Easttown, for example, this this year. But, yeah, White Lotus. Uh, pleasant surprise, because I wasn't really anticipating it. I wasn't anticipating
0: it either. And I am, you know, echoing your phrase and uh, of, like, uh of, of the ingenuity of making this show you know creating this bubble they filmed all this in fall and, and winter of 2020 so this wasn't something that they had in the can and were just holding for like this was something that they just made wanted to get out and also you know the commentary i think some subtle and some not so subtle on socio-political issues um you know and just in turn but to do it in the way that they did in terms of like relationship dynamics and in, in, in terms of uh you know characters making choices that you just would never expect when you first meet them it it really uh just really impressive and you know it's I think there's a lot of different relationships on the show that I just found myself like feeling so much tension in my stomach watching I but I, I think the place i want to start with that is the relationship between um sydney sweeney and uh, who, uh Brittany o'grady who plays paula and right. man their dynamic i felt like where it started you know and they, they kind of in that first episode are like oh the bitchy teenagers were just like judging everybody and fucking with like the older people mm-hmm. to them being like this like epitome of like this like really toxic relationship that's built on like white privilege and mm-hmm. using um you know a person of color as like uh almost an accessory to the to the life that that person has just was like really really like it struck me and i was really impressed with their their acting in this did you feel the same way
1: yeah yeah well i think everything with uh what's their name the the family is just really impressive because that's where like the 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 most overt like conversations about like class Mm -hmm. come up this wealthy white family with a entitled daughter who doesn't actually see herself as entitled she thinks she's really woke Mm -hmm. but still actually benefits from everything she says she's aware of and of course um Paula calls that out at the end there. Uh really well done. Uh I would say it was notable to me that Paula at no point's like, you know, let me try and help out Kai. This guy totally fucked over mm-hmm. <laughs> this ill begotten scheme. Yep. Nope. Nope. She 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 had a little selfishness too. And I think that's that's kind of the thing with this show is almost every character has some kind of flaw or some kind of tick, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the case of uh, Jake Lacey's Shane and Jake Lacey, great performance just because he's off type being a dick. He's usually not playing that kind of character, Mm -hmm. but Shane is kind of right. Most of the time in terms of his complaints, just the way he's going about it is, is, is terrible, obviously. Yep. And, Murray Bartlett's Armand is, is barely competent as the hotel manager, but you still really sympathize with him because, yeah. of the, 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 again, the stuff about class coming in, these people in the service industry that are just subjected to making other people feel happy at uh, when all else fails, that is their job, mm-hmm. and they have a resentment towards that. And it doesn't make you feel good you know oh no. but you see we see see anything that happens really like rachel right like alexander dodario's character she does not feel fulfilled in her relationship she clearly is married newly married to an entitled rich prick
0: and now a murderer yet,
1: right <laughs> and yet uh like her her like work play it's like oh well you fucking write like listicles like it's not like there's just some wrong that needs to be righted here you know yep like there's all there's something wrong with everyone one way or the other and right. i i like how hard the show is on all of its characters you know mm-hmm. if anyone is like a shining light it's probably uh belinda natasha rothwell's oh, character like she's the one that yeah. doesn't have any flaws and yet the show doesn't give her like some big speech but rothwell still sells it at the end when she's like uh what well, she's want my advice I'm all out.
0: Yeah, such yeah. a good line, and it's just such a. I think like uh you know, talk about those meta I don't know, messages that come across, like how black women, I think, are used and abused within society, and she just got to the point where she's like, "I'm all used up. You know, you know I can't give any more of myself to these white people who don't actually give a fuck about me." And I, I thought that was like a great, actually, a great way to end it because I think if she had had a speech, it wouldn't have felt as real and i think that's the other thing is except for maybe quinn i think the arc of most of these people feels really real like rachel's arc you know that like i made a terrible mistake you know wanting to leave her husband on the honeymoon and then when like push came to shove she didn't want to give up that lifestyle she didn't actually want to like be out on her own she just Mm -hmm. wanted to like feel like she had more control in the relationship and she gave in, you know and like it's yeah it's uh, I think just true to life, you know, I think, um, you know, Steve's on, for example, like you see him grappling with the the stuff about his dad and then like his own sexuality and like that whole thing, I thought played out very realistically where it was just like this, like real terror about even the idea of like questioning, like the sexuality of yourself or like a, a man that you idolize in some way and how that affects you. I thought was really just like, crew form and Connie Britton I thought was throwing 100 miles per hour her and Murray Bartlett were probably my two favorite performances because I mean Murray gets the most to do <laughs> as Armand he's just like ridiculous and all over the place so much of the time and on tragic a hundred... in the end you know oh, it's kind of spirals totally. out but uh, I mean just like spirals out in the most entertaining way for an actor but Connie Britton just was like so measured as I, I think we called her like a Gwyneth Paltrow type. I guess she's more like tech based than someone like Gwyneth Paltrow. But like the episodes where she plays up her, like, what was it? Her, like, I'm a self made person. I wasn't. I didn't like get where I was because I'm a woman. Like that sort of stuff. I just was like, man. Like the she just always seems like she nails these sorts of roles, and just the casting was great. What did you think about Quinn though? Like I think I've seen some people feeling unsure about the the ending with quinn and you know how realistic that ending was
1: oh i mean yeah it's not it's not that realistic i do think the show does a good job of making his character much more likable by the end because in the beginning he just he just sucks like yeah he he might be on the spectrum but like at the end of the day like he just didn't have good social skills even as part of his toxic family and Mm -hmm. like like when i watched him like drown his ipad switch and phone i was like okay well you're just an idiot like i i'm not i, don't think, I can't feel bad for that you know well,
0: but but you feel bad for him because he's a white male right
1: that was oh, like man.
0: maybe the funniest like frame that the that connie britton's character tried to
1: give throughout the whole thing i just was like yeah. holy shit how on touch? I touch and um Go on. Sorry, but, but yeah, on. but by but by the end, you know, it's like kind of having this epiphany about what you value in life, and yeah, maybe they cut some corners. We only really only really see him get on the canoe and get off the canoe and go to the next dinner and say how happy he is. Like, there's not a whole lot said on it. I guess it's, it's really kind of like a secondary thing. Like, it wasn't like the main focus mm-hmm. of the show because it's not directly tied to all the themes. But um I didn't mind it. Yeah, but I thought like
0: you know, a character finding like true happiness and disconnecting and, you know, learning the culture, being one with the culture, letting themselves be immersed in something was like a nice message. And I think people can have that experience when they go on a resort trip like this. I don't know. They, I feel like this is a show we could do like a very long review on because there's just so many themes that came out, but um I, I guess maybe a good place to wrap this up. I, th- I think we, both agree season two is going to be probably a different resort almost certainly a different cast you know but i I think the premise is good um when you think about the show and you look back what do you feel like is going to be like the scene the moment the thing you're going to remember
1: most Uh, that's a that's a great question i'm not sure i'm really not sure um yeah I, i don't know if there's like a standout like Rewatchable scene like that, honestly, because it's hmm, it's a good question. I know I it. it wo- go ahead. Go ahead. I think it might be that scene where Armand finally
0: dies, right? Because it I mean, the mm. visual of him actually pooping into the suitcase is such like a on the nose metaphor. But then it's so tense, like watching them like run around that room and like yeah. Uh, I feel like that was just really like a perfect ending. And then seeing Shane, who just did this horrible thing, like oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and like you see, he's not like really a terrible person but he's also still a douchebag who just murdered someone so it's like yeah perfect encapsulation right there
1: yeah i will say it's not going to be any scene with uh tanya jennifer coolidge like jennifer coolidge's performance is good but i just really didn't like the tanya character just like it's just so aloof Mm -hmm. and like i don't know the energy was just weird for me didn't really like that one well what did you
0: think of greg her love and trust
1: yeah, he he was kind of cool just because he's like added halfway through this the the show. It's like a different energy. Also, like when Molly Shannon shows up as yeah. his mom for a bit, <laughs> and I like that. That was that was nice. Uh, Greg,
0: did you recognize him? Uh, no, yeah, I, I, this is gonna be a deep pull. Did you ever see Napoleon Dynamite, Dave? Yeah. Greg is Uncle Rico from Napoleon what? Dynamite. He threw football over that the, them their mountains back in
1: the Damn. day. So, yeah. Did you, did you recognize Quinn? He was in uh, Underground Railroad, man. That's right. Fred uh, Hetchinger yeah. was a uh, young Joel Edgerton in the flashback episode.
0: Much different role, and you say probably
1: a, probably an actor to be uh, keeping her eye on. Yeah. So, quite clearly, is... Cindy Sweeney is just adding to her CV. She's actually has a quite impressive young career already. She's she's dynamite, man. But
0: <sighs> let's move on from TV to, and not, not not to step on your review here, Dave, but a movie that I think you referred to in a tweet as the best video game movie that's ever been made. Free guy. Tell me why.
1: It's true. Now, it's not not an adaptation of any existing video game IP. So to some people, that is like a disqualification for the criteria. But in terms of movies based on or about video games, the culture, the uh, phenomenon of gaming, this I think is the best because it's just i really well done quite self-aware and meta watchable entertaining it, it really is the whole picture to me and if you're a fan of gaming if you know gaming culture you know video games like the reference points I think are make it even better like you can enjoy this if you don't know much about gaming but if you do I think that even enriches it um you know free guy is a holdover from Fox that Disney inherited, it was supposed to come out last summer, finally out now exclusively in theaters, starring Ryan Reynolds. And even though it was made way back in 2019, it's based off a script from like, I think, 2016. It's a very uh, long, gestating project that ended up being directed by Sean Levy. And it's, it's honestly a really high concept. What if a non-playable character in a online Video game similar to say Grand Theft Auto Online. What if that character who normally would be relegated to what he's programmed, he or she is programmed to do, and cannot deviate from that as a non playable computer character? What if that character self actualizes for some reason and starts being able to do what it wants? What would happen? And that's essentially what happens with Free Guy. And it's really awesome. I didn't expect there to be some like I think actually quite intriguing, like real world plots that would connect with what's going on in the game as Guy, Ryan Reynolds' character, becomes self-aware and starts doing his thing. But I think it all really comes together in an impressive way. Um, First big movie role for Jodie Comer, who we both adore. Yeah. Also a big movie role for Joe Keery from Stranger Things, Um, and they have a relationship as video game developers are trying to get back at the big egomaniacal ma- uh, developer that kind of like took over their game idea and stuff and is profiting from it. And that uh, ego driven developers played by Tycho Waititi in a really funny role. <laughs> Man, so, he's getting a lot of like
0: small roles recently.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm just coming off of uh, the Suzette Squad, of course. Mm-hmm. And in the game, it's uh, Ryan Reynolds as well as Little Real Howery as his uh, best friend. And it just really comes together, I think, in a really fun way. I, I really like the action, but it's like the kind of like the progression of like, how the story goes. It almost makes sense for like, a game like leveling up, getting ready to, uh, you know, achieve things. I think it all really makes sense. And I'm not going to spoil them, but there's really awesome cameos in this, you know, um, and in general, like the, you know, IP references. It's almost like, you could definitely compare this to ready player one and even more of like as like a cultural level in terms of how the movie works, similar to like Wreck-It Ralph Hmm. um, in the animation side. So I would absolutely uh, recommend it. I was, you know, going in with really no expectations, but I mean, in terms of like watching the, watching the hosts become alive, this was way more compelling than say Westworld. Interesting. Would, not that I guess that says too much if people know our feelings on Westworld, but similar themes, nonetheless. Yeah, uh, and, and the thing is, like, it's not too serious, right? Like, it's not the funniest Ryan Reynolds. Like, we know how good Ryan Reynolds can be with like self-deprecating, mile-a-minute humor. It's not at Deadpool level, like, but it's in that vein in terms of for Reynolds' performance. And even though it's not the funniest thing he's been in of late, it's funny enough but the action's good and the plot's good it it, it's it's quite riveting honestly i really liked it
0: so sean levy directs this and he's probably most well known for night at the museum trilogy Mm -hmm. i guess there's three or four maybe there's four um but you know he's more recently um date night uh no actually no i was thinking a game night so i was gonna say a much better movie but no date night is not movie i actually think i know so i'm looking at this (laughs) filmography and i'm like there's not really much here i'm super impressed with so to see him get back behind you know the camera after what seven years since his last uh directed movie and to make something good probably a a bit of a a shocker in a a sense but uh i really want to see this now like this was a movie i was like fine missing beforehand um and now I feel like I really missed out. And I'm going to talk about the movie I chose to see instead. And mm-hmm. it's certainly enjoyable. But this sounds like a lot more fun than the one I was at. So yeah, a little jealous of your experience this weekend, Dave.
1: And, it, and thankfully, it um, actually kind of overperformed expectations at the box office, making about $28 million, which is obviously a great sign, given that Free Guy is a original, non-franchise IP. Reynolds mm-hmm. has since tweeted, and Levy has confirmed, that Disney now wants a sequel to this movie. So that's cool that they're doubling down again on an inherited film. But they, I mean, it's nice to see the success, you know, just coming off the Suicide Squad not being that successful, you know. So sure. yeah, if people, there's good, there's good word of mouth. Do uh, you want to go? People are going to the movies when they're young. You know, people didn't go to respect too much because that's a movie intended for older people, but that's to be expected, I guess.
0: Yeah. And let's talk about respect. I, I don't know if this needs to be, uh, super long review but i went to go see respect uh directed by leezel tommy a uh, south african director with uh not not a lot of credits to his name at this point but i think i think after seeing this movie there's definitely a lot of potential there's some really interesting choices and shots this is the aretha franklin biopic you know jennifer hudson uh plays aretha franklin and aretha franklin herself prior to her passing said that if a pick was ever made of her she would want jennifer hudson to play her so um definitely very cool to see her in this role you know we're getting this just a few months after the season of genius aretha franklin starring mm-hmm. cynthia arrivo uh wrapped up and um i started watching that did not finish it quite yet but um knew some of the storylines that played out in respect going in because i had watched a few episodes of that we franklin by any measure had a amazing life and i think the fact that her life is so big and there's so many aspects of it that play to uh Wow, you know, like why some of the more dramatic things happen in her life down the road almost makes it really hard, I think, to do a good biopic of her in a concise way. Right. Like, the, the, this really should have been like a four-hour movie if you were going to do it right, it almost feels like.
1: And it's not like the movie short. Sure, it's two and a half hours. But <laughs> yeah. Does this try and do the whole story as opposed to, like, a specific piece of life?
0: Yeah, so it it ends after her 1972 um live album which was her most successful album it was also a gospel album that she recorded at um, a church that she visited when she was younger but it tells her her whole life story from that point you know from childhood up to that point and uh you know it has some flashback moments and stuff like that but I i was i left the movie feeling like they touched on a lot of different things And I don't know if they ever really gave any of them enough time, but it seems like the theme that they're trying to get out of respect was in order for Aretha Franklin to really like become the artist she was to truly be the artist she was meant to be. She had to really find herself and faith and family were the way that she did that. And I think that message is communicated effectively but you know like any music biopic that tries to examine the whole life story of artists and usually artists that they're doing biopics about have very troubled lives in one way or another or at least have parts of their lives that are troubled um there's a lot of up and down in this there's a lot of back and forth there's a lot of her being in an abusive relationship and getting out of an abusive relationships you know with ted white played by marlon waynes and he's truly despicable like he he actually got reaction out of people in my theater guffaws people snickering like people being very responsive to him on on screen so you know in that in that case nice to see marlon wayans getting a serious role and and kind of nailing it um I, i just feel like the movie was long and and maybe not long for effective reasons but man some of the scenes and probably the scenes you could guess were fucking dynamite like the first time that that they they write respect together you know she has this long she has like nine albums before she finally writes respect right and these albums are all kind of cookie cutter for the time boring covers of other songs and when she finally like goes to the south is playing with these white guys who are like this funk uh you know recording band and they start making music and she's finally taking the lead it's like everything comes together and the scene is just really, really great. And I I wish that for a person who seems to have been really just a, a leader, a game changer in so many aspects outside music that the music scenes weren't the only part I was leaving being like, that was really awesome. And that's, I think where maybe it falls short for me,
1: but it, it honestly sounds a lot like the United States versus Billy Holiday from earlier this year, hmm. where like the the talking points are almost the same. It's like it's kind of a long winded biopic that tries to keep, achieve too much. But a lot of the set piece scenes are really effective due to the strength of our central performer. Hmm. Billy Holiday's case that's Andre Day, and respect, of course, it's uh Jennifer Hudson, who I would say is like just kind of like the default choice for something like this right and obviously she she won the way back for dream girls but like she's the best of the best for something like this so it mm-hmm. makes perfect sense and she is pegged right now as a best actress uh nominee of course we're mm-hmm. pre-award season but that's you know the early expectation so do you think uh this is a performance that is in the running
0: yeah, you know, it's. I was thinking about this when I left. Yes, when I left the theater yesterday, I think it's certainly good enough to be nominated. We're in a stacked year, you know. And I, I, I was trying to think of what other performances feel almost certain to be nominated next to her. The only one I could definitely think of was Gaga
1: for House of Gucci. Gucci but yeah, you know, there's Justine Isa Tammy, Faye is being pegged as well. That was
0: um, the one that came to mind. It yeah. Was, you know, but it's it's just the sort of thing where I think it just depends on how strong the year is because I, I don't think I don't think this will end up being the best of the year, but I think I I think it's certainly nomination worthy. So I mean, she'll definitely get a Golden Globes nomination for whatever that's worth. So yeah, best music musical or comedy probably.
1: You know I, I'm I'm sure this is gonna uh, come out soon, but people that have seen both and people that really know Aretha Franklin's story. Which performance and which per, yeah, product do people like more? Cynthia mm-hmm. Revo and Genius Aretha Aretha or Jennifer Hudson in respect. i I'm i yeah. wouldn't be surprised if it's more down the middle than people say it. 'cause like the Genius shows are not like the most widely celebrated uh shows, but they're they're still vehicles for a central performance, just like uh most biopics are. So yeah. Be interesting I, to see how that goes.
0: I think like my my, just my final word on it is I think this was a good enough biopic where I wouldn't say it was like an injustice to Aretha Franklin anyway, but I think it's just the sort of thing where she was so much, so much larger than life that like it's it was hard. This is like almost an impossible task to make a perfect biopic around it. So admirable job done by all. But Dave, that wasn't the only movie that centered around music that we that at least I saw this weekend. And uh, that other movie is Coda, which dropped
1: on Apple Plus. Were you looking forward to Coda? I was looking forward to Coda once the news dropped at uh, Sundance 2021 that Mm -hmm. Coda broke the uh, acquisition uh, record. $25 million buy for Apple TV Plus, breaking the record set just last year with Hulu and Palm Springs. So when you see something like that, and it was like a $7 million difference is quite the margin of record breaking, you know, it's like, Oh, wow. People really like Coda and it did win the, uh, uh, dramatic jury and audience, uh, awards at Sundance 2021. So there was a, a really warm reception to it earlier this year. So, uh, yeah, with that, I, I was looking forward to it and, uh, you know, coming out in August, a little bit before awards season, perhaps a little curious in Apple's part because they clearly dropped the bag on this with awards play in mind. But either way, was looking forward to it, and I, uh, I did enjoy it. What did you think?
0: Yeah, I thought this movie was great. Um, I was surprised at how emotional this movie made me, and I think it worked. it it, it surprised me because I think after like watching the first like 25 or 30 minutes, I was like, Oh, this is okay. Like, I I don't really know if I'm going to get there with this movie. And then by the end I was totally in and totally captivated and rooting for uh, Ruby to, you know, uh, follow her dreams. Uh, I I really felt for her situation and for her family situation. And I, I think they tell so many aspects of the story. So expertly it's just really impressive like at first i didn't think i was going to really buy into the family dynamic you know i was kind of i was kind of like man this really sucks it seems like they're really using ruby in a lot of ways and they and they are you know it's like a codependent relationship in a lot of ways um but i think it's the scene where you know they they catch the parents having sex right miles comes over they're going to practice the duet and they catch the parents having sex and then the way that the the dad and the mom respond and make them talk about it. And after that, I just was like totally in because I was like laughing. I love the dynamic of the family. It felt like such a real like awkward family moment. And I was like, okay, now I'm now I'm getting more and more of it. And as the stakes raise, as Ruby's put into this impossible situation of chasing her own dreams or fulfilling her family's expectations of her, it just really, really all worked for me. And the music choices were just fantastic. So I was just really, really blown away. Well, what aspects of the movie did you like? You said you enjoyed it.
1: Uh, Yeah, so kind of, it's kind of similarly like Coda almost the whole time. It, it, it's a little hokey. It's a little cheesy, right? And it, it, it has like f- familiar aspects, right? It's like the coming of age story, really central on the family. But of course, the key thing here is the specifics, right? What does Coda mean? Child of deaf adults, And, you know, we just talked about uh, deaf representation, deaf stories uh, in media just last year with Sound of Metal, which got many plaudits, including Best Picture, Best Actor nominations. And, you know, Sound of Metal, the lead performance, the main focus of the movie is still Riz Ahmed's character, a hearing person and the character that's becoming deaf. But Paul Racy. Notably, you know, got that supporting actor nomination and a lot of love. And he, of course, was a co- is a coda himself. But all the other deaf actors are largely in the periphery because it was a Riz, a Riz story. But in this, 75% of the lead actors are deaf performers. Yeah, And, uh, I mean, no- notably, you have uh, Marley Martin. Maitland, who plays Jackie, the oh, mom, Maitland, you're right. the uh, only deaf winner of a acting oscar in 1986 best actress and i think you're right like even though amelia jones is is not deaf and her character isn't deaf but like the the family just felt so real and the dynamics are so strong and because they kept bringing everything back around to the story focusing on everything with the family i think that's what makes it work by the end I th- like like you like, i'm very similar to you where it's like i wasn't like being super moved throughout most of it but once we get to like that performance that ruby gives with her school chorus yeah and, like her parents and her brother are taking it all in even though they can't actually hear the music like that i think that's that piece is like really really great yeah and, and moving and then it goes from there of course when we go to the audition and stuff and they send her off and all that so it has a nice crescendo <laughs> yeah use of term there in terms of how it builds uh, for for the viewer
0: Yeah, for sure, and you know I agree. I think that that uh, school uh, performance scene, coupled with the next scene where the dad asks her to sing, what and he like feels her vocal cords and feels the vibrations, and um, you know, kind of learning to try to understand this language that he just has, he's never going to be able to fully comprehend, and kind of vice versa for her. It's uh, it's really moving, and then obviously I think the the Berkeley performance where she's also signing both sides. Now the Joni Mitchell classic to her family while she does it. It's just like absolute knockout home run, Um, you know, uh, closing or final scene. Uh, Just really, really impressive for the way that they did it. And I I thought Amelia, Amelia Jones uh, was Mm -hmm. really, really uh, great in this. I I didn't really love um, Ferdia Walsh Pilo as miles. Uh, Something about him just, didn't his or his performance didn't totally hit for me, but I thought Amelia was great.
1: Yeah, yeah, I wasn't too familiar with her. She's uh, in the ensemble of the Netflix show Lock and Key, which is like a comic adaptation, but she was just cast in a New Yorker story adaptation to star alongside Nicholas Braun. So mm. perhaps Amelia Jones will quickly become in hot demand. She is only 19. But yeah, she's really good. I mean, she has to carry the whole film you know yeah especially because the other her her main co-stars uh don't don't speak so really she carries most of the lines
0: yeah just uh if you have apple plus and you know you i think you want to take in a movie that i think pays a lot of respect to a community that seems to be getting more becoming more visible especially in media definitely uh worth your time and it it hits emotionally by the end, so you'll you'll get your money's worth mm-hmm. for it.
1: Yeah, and just looking into this is actually a remake of a twenty fourteen French film, La Famille Bellier, but notably the parents in that were not uh deaf. Mm-hmm. So Coda seems to be the uh positive redux in that regard. So curious to see how this movie is received moving forward and whether it becomes an awards uh thing when apple does a campaign in the fall because they obviously would like it too. And I think, I think it would be just no question. It's a heartwarming movie. I feel like more people see it, the more people will talk about it because it's like one of those uplifting movies.
0: Yeah, I agree. I've been telling a lot of people to watch if they have apple plus. So uh, definitely, definitely uh, worth the time. Dave, we're going to wrap up there. We got through
1: it all. What do we got next week? Donda. (laughs) Donda. (laughs) Unlikely. Uh, we do have Lords' highly anticipated third album, Solar Power, coming out, as well as Nicole Kidman's next show on Hulu, Nine Perfect Strangers, and also a highly anticipated film star, Adam Driver, called Annette, which will be coming to Amazon Prime this end of this week after having a brief theater run. So we'll be talking about those soon. And of course, we'll be uh, posting our Anderson pack, Album rankings next week in anticipation of Silk Sonic's collaboration with Bruno Mars. So, lots of stuff coming up.
0: Yeah. And we're going to have some nostalgia, nostalgia rankings. So, hit that subscribe on slash nostalgia pod and uh, follow us on Twitter at nostalgia pod. We had a member of Abstract Mind State checking out our review. So, if it's good enough for him, you should be checking it out too. <laughs> We'll catch you all on the flip side.